Hello and welcome back. Today we've got another live recording for you and I hope you enjoyed the last one. And if you haven't, feel free to go back and pause this and have a quick listen. I'm not going anywhere. But the last recording was diversity in esports at Monash University, supported by PLE Computers and Paradox Gaming. And we managed to cover a whole lot of different topics in esports, talked a little bit about possible gender segregation and whether that's good or bad in regards to female-only tournaments. We talked about diversity being a little bit more than just only males and females, um, talking about different sex, gender, um, preferences, these kind of things as well. Obviously, we can't unpack absolutely everything, um, and we're not going to come to absolutely every solution, but hopefully we got some people thinking a little bit and dove a little bit deeper than what's the status quo, I guess, these days. And I talked about this last time as to why I wanted to do these live podcasts, just talking about it being a bit deeper than a general panel, hopefully for an esports enthusiast or someone who's just really interested in that particular topic to dive a little bit deeper and learn a bit more. So this brings me to the podcast today. We headed up to Canberra to Reload Bar. It's an esports themed bar which basically means that there's gaming-themed drinks, um, there's events based around esports, they have an internet cafe upstairs, they do a lot of cool events based around that stuff. So we headed up there and I really wanted to talk more about not only just investment, but also employment in the space. You know, it's obvious that business and games, we do a lot of mentoring courses for people to get jobs in esports. And it's the most common question that I get on LinkedIn or on Twitter, you know, just at live events, whether it's packs or LAN parties is, you know, how do I get a job in esports? So people are looking for that place to start. And then I guess on the higher end of the scale, everyone from VCs down to, you know, angel investors, personal investors and companies and saying, hey, what's the next win in esports? Where can we pitch our money and our time? What should we be looking at? So I gathered together a couple of people, headed up to Canberra and uh, had a bit of a chat about all this in front of a crowd. The guests I've got are quite high caliber. And I think you'll I think you'll enjoy them, especially some of the stuff that Rowan Sawyer has to say. So without further ado, I will uh, be rolling a tape for this. Just some really quick housekeeping as well. Once again, the quality is a little bit lower than you might be used to because this is at a live venue. Often they are a bit echoey, but I think it's uh, I think the content will outweigh some of the quality, so that should be fine for you. And also, um, just note that there's a small section in the middle where there were some audio difficulties, so unfortunately I had to cut out a little bit of that. Obviously, if you don't want to uh, have any of these difficulties, you can attend live if possible. We'll be announcing our next one soon, which will be actually in Sydney. So if you're an esports person based in Sydney, Australia, feel free to hang out for that one. But without further ado, we'll roll the next tape. And I just have to say once again that this podcast has been made possible thanks to the lovely support of Paradox Gaming and esports team at Paradox Gaming AU on Twitter and also at PLE Computers on Twitter, a retailer that supports everything we do here at Business and Games and um, someone that supports so many different people in wider esports. For those of you who are here, like I said, my name's Chris Smith, aka Mayo. I've uh, been around in the industry for a while. If you if you want to learn anything about me, you could listen to any of the previous podcasts or just go to the About page on Business and Games. But a really quick rundown is I've... Um, been in esports for about 10 years now and I've sat on all six sides of the fence is kind of what I say. So I was a top level Battlefield 2 player for a while, became a commentator um, and that was kind of my ins to the scene. I um, started doing some marketing with them, working with LAN parties, now we're called Netgame Radio. I um, helped them expand from Battlefield 2 into Counter-Strike Source and 
lo and behold, I had a land party guy come to me one day and said, um, we've got this new company called Thermaltake who make uh, computer components. They want to launch a new part of their company called TD Esports. Um, and they want to do that by running a $30,000 tournament. And I'm the only person they know that plays video games. So they've told me I have to do it, please help me. Uh, so that was a trial by fire. And I uh, had to change a lot of the stuff and kind of cut my teeth in uh, community management. But Demiltake liked it so much that they hired me. So I moved up from, from Tassie to Melbourne for four years, worked there doing a whole lot of different things. Uh, ended up leaving to study social work, something completely different and being a journo for a while. Got headhunted by Corsair, back into the industry. Um, leading to me, I guess, where I am now, doing everything from kind of player management to MC and hosting, uh, do some B2B stuff with, with non-endemic brands, helping them understand what esports is and how to get involved. Um, and then some podcasts like this too. We also do some mentoring courses. We do a women in, women in games course, which is female presenters, female students. We do some online mentoring courses and other things like that too. So for me, you know, my passion is very much about the business behind esports, and you know that's why I've got these these two gentlemen here with me today as well. So sitting on my on my left in the middle here, just first, just uh, Rowan Sawyer. So doing a lot of stuff within the space, but do you want to maybe give us a bit of an idea about how you got to where you are today, and especially your work in traditional sports? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks everyone for coming as well, and I'm glad I'm the youngest person on the panel, um, so you can <laughs> tell I'm a big time gamer, but my time uh, coming into esports and i've been in the esports space for around three years now but uh have come from a traditional sporting background albeit uh prior to that was in an investment banking background so uh worked for goldman's and ubs for nearly 10 years uh in strategy roles and investment roles um in the banking space had an absolute love and passion for sports so decided that i'd cross over and try to become a sports administrator at the time was lucky enough to hold uh in the last couple of years Head of commercial, head of marketing roles, both at the Australian Surf Club uh, and the Rugby League World Cup, which happened uh, last year in 2017. Uh, I have my own consultancy business now, which is ASE Esports, um, and actually moving into a new role uh, in the coming weeks with Queensland Rugby League as their new chief operating officer. So uh, a pretty heavy traditional sports background. Uh, most of our time, uh, as you can see, has been spent in the commercial marketing space. And through this time, I. I kind of stumbled across esports in London uh, three and a half years ago when I was at the O2 Arena walking around there and uh, saw a CSGO event. Couldn't figure out the jerseys of the teams that people were supporting or whether it was a Katy Perry concert. So um, I decided to go and have a bit of a look. Uh, found out it was a live computer game tournament, which kind of blew my mind. But the thing I really, really liked about it was uh, the fans had every attribute of traditional sporting fans. So. They bought the merchandise, they were watching the broadcast live, they had memberships, um, you know, they had wacky sticks, they were cheering and passionate fans. Uh, and to me, that's when the penny dropped that esports was a sport. Uh, and maybe that the, the, the traditional sporting businesses like the ones that I've worked in had, had neglected it or forgotten about it. And the bigger thing to me was the demographic. It was, you know, 13 to 25 and every, every brand and every sport that I've worked with or, or worked inside of uh, really struggle to speak to people in that space. So uh, I went down the journey of spending 12 months traveling the world, meeting with publishers, meeting with teams, um, meeting with anyone I could to learn about esports. And let me tell you, I went down the rabbit hole and it was um, a scary place to start with for someone who wasn't a gamer. Uh, and I dare say I'm not the greatest expert in esports or, or particularly to traditional sports or commercial background. And uh, that led to us buying uh, the Abyss franchise two years ago now off Nathan Matthews and the guys and 
we now sit under the franchise Bombers Esports and have a 50-50 JV with uh, the Essendon Football Club, which kind of makes us the, the biggest esports club in Australia, if you want to put it on that basis, with you know 80,000 members of the club and uh, a fully integrated esports team. Yeah, fantastic. And then the other person we have sitting on the end here, someone who's been heavily embedded in grassroots esports even longer than me would be uh would be jim andrews obviously from from reload bar who's one of our supporters for tonight and it's obviously where we are physically so do you want to give us a bit of an idea about how you got to where you are today uh yeah no worries so yeah as chris said uh grassroots sort of um that's how i've got into esports i've been running tournaments specifically for a very long time beginning in about 2004 running tournaments for battlefield 1942 and then cs 1.6 dota league of legends CS Source, CSGO, Overwatch, Rocket League, probably run close to 100 tournaments in my time. So that's where I've come into it from, largely. Uh, Reload Esports was started about three, three and a half years ago. Uh, grew out of what we were already doing with the Barracks Game Center and Reload Byron Games. It was a natural evolution for us. And we've sort of steadily grown and increased our capacity from just running LAN Cafe tournaments to adding in a stream, casters, production, steadily improving our production quality building all of that sort of thing up and now moving into stage events. So we've just recently done staged events at GammaCon uh, just a couple of weekends ago with six, 7,000 people through the venues. Um, GammaCon, you know, starting to get paid to do these things properly instead of doing them just out of volunteer work, which is great. Um, we've also been working with universities, running championship uh, between the different university esports clubs. And we're starting to see a lot of interest from all over, from business and from government, people are really paying notice, particularly in the last 12 months, I'd say the scene's really exploded. You're getting paid in these sports? A little bit. How do I do that? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been paid in three years, but. Yeah, I think we're in a pretty enviable position in that sense. That's good. Yeah, fantastic. And I, I guess like your journey just further proves what we've talked about, uh, like in season one of the Business and Games podcast and kind of any 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 panels anything like that is esports is very much a startup space and i think what i yeah. get from what you've done is pivoted quite a lot is you've started off as the barracks doing only internet cafe yeah which has had its ups and downs and and right now i you know i'd say that internet cafes are australia wider and up at the moment um compared to what they were a few years ago yeah, but yeah absolutely. pivoting to kind of have the space as well as plus a bar and then start to expand into other things as well when you become a you know, quote unquote expert in the space, you get to dabble a bit in some other areas and stuff as yeah, well. Yeah, that's right. And we've not only done tournaments, we've also um, done like a bit of consulting and a bit of team management, um, finding out what sort of works best for us. And uh, yeah, we've been, been lucky in that sense. But the pivoting is important and sort of feeling out what works for you and what works for your team. And yeah. Yeah. So asking Rowan, um, you know, from the traditional sports to esports there's obviously a lot of people now who are you know every nrl team's looking into esports every nba team either has esports components is looking into it football internationally afl in australia so what are what are some key learnings for you coming from traditional sports to esports you've already identified a lot of uh difficult to reach target market which is a positive yep. but what are what are some struggles and some things that traditional sports people need to keep in mind before just throwing money at, at the fancy pants esports world yeah i, I think the first thing that people need to realise is that, you know, when you have a look at esports in Australia versus esports globally, uh, I would say that we're nearly in year one um, of professional esports here in Australia. You know, rugby league's been going for 100 years, AFL's been going for 100 years. Um, so to start to try to compare your investments and the audiences compared to traditional sports, um, we're going to fall flat on our face. And um, I think we're going to see a little bit of this at the moment when people sort of rushing to the gate because it's the big shiny toy. and.
big global numbers and Shaq owns a team and you know Inter Milan have just gone and bought a team but you've got to remember that the scenes in Europe and the US are, are much more developed uh, they have larger audiences and larger fan bases so the commercial reality of those teams are, are different albeit you know I met with a number of Overwatch teams uh, in LA only three months ago and they're still after having to pay their licensing fees and bits and pieces so I think the first thing you've got to understand is that it's, it's a small market here at the moment. Uh, it's definitely growing. I've seen it in the last three years that I've been in it. It's nearly doubled year on year. I, I would say from a commercial perspective in what we're doing, um, we're starting to get more mainstream exposure, which can only help the sport. And I think what you've got to do is you've got to understand uh, esports as a space. I think most people out in the traditional landscape, when they think esports, they think there's one game um, that's played. They don't realize that there's a myriad of games that sit underneath it. You know, players don't play multiple games, they're specialists in certain games, the way team setups are run. So, as I said, uh, an esports team is probably no different to, you know, a, a, a football club. And one of the reasons that I went out and, and sourced a football club to, to take an investment in our team wasn't for a financial gain, but it was because every functional area of an esports team sits within inside a football club. So it gave us actually scale at a level that we can't really do based on the investment size that it is at the moment. So, you know, to run the back end of a content production team, a digital team, a licensing team, a merchandise team, you know, a fan engagement team um, in and around an esports team could cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. And at the moment, the commercial reality wouldn't allow you to support that. Uh, football clubs have this, uh, they sit inside their businesses all the time. One of the really cool things that we found out at Essendon Football Club, uh, once we made the announcement that they'd purchased the team, 16 people inside their organisation were, were really big gamers. So um, they were more, more extra hours to, to work on, on the Bombers eSports team, which you know obviously then helped us reduce costs, but also give us a large level of scale and obviously a huge level of expertise on a week to code. So, you know, I think the first thing you need to do is really understand why you're going into the space because it's big and everyone's doing it because it's small um, and understand um, that it's going to take time. You know, I think any brand that comes on board, any new a team space or, or an air, we, we have to look at a five-year time horizon at the moment. Um, if we go any shorter here in Australia, we, we won't get the investment uh, and we're going to take... You know, people are just got to be conscious that you know we are growing. Um, it's got a great audience. They're an engaged audience. They're high spenders. They're a group of people to work with. Um, they call. Uh, if you if you uh, try to whack a big commercial overlay onto what you do, so you've got to be. Small. I think the best way to do that in the way is, you know, we have gamers employed in our business. So I I don't run that business day to day. Nathan Matthews, who built and owned Abyss is the general manager of esports and you know without Nathan that business for us so to point people who, who know the space and know the games and you know the people sitting around this room and the people at this desk uh, know it much better than me so rely on your experts yeah and that's a great segue into I guess what we'll be talking about next with you know uh, so you know same you'll see that all night and about just kind of the starting out places and it, it's interesting thing that you identified about um, you know looking at the overwatch licenses and, and also the the spending natures and just expanding that you know when you're looking at these products and tools that allow people to play the games in Australia and even esports as well we're very similar to the US in our spending habits and 
and the way that we like to do things. So we can hopefully learn some things from there while we're you know five years behind where the US is, where they're probably. It'd be interesting to your thoughts on this, and you know where the US is probably sitting in maybe stage four of investment, where we're yep. sitting in you know maybe stage one and a half, stage two at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting when you when you sit down with both Riot and, and Blizzard, um, who are obviously behemoths of businesses. Um, typically, they won't give you too much data in and around um, what people are spending or what they're doing. But the one out of both of those organisations is our region, and in particular Australia, uh, is nearly the highest spend per capita of any region in the world uh, for their game. So I think when you start to have a look at, you know, uh, are our fans and are our consumers spending when you're a non-endemic brand? Yeah, and the data that comes out of those two massive games, um, being Overwatch and, and obviously League, it shows that they are spenders. And you're right, it, to, to put a year on how far we're behind or what phase we're in um, is sometimes difficult. I, I definitely think we're in phase two of investment. Um, so we, we've seen gamers themselves having to, to prop up teams and, and try to run these teams commercially themselves. Uh, I was probably in that first phase of private investment, which you know the Diewalls and Dave Harris and Guinevere Capital uh, were a step ahead of us. You saw the crows happen talking 12 months ago to, to a bit longer than that when the first real wave of I guess private investment came into the space and then um, as we've seen it's exploded we've had a number of teams taken over commercially inside uh, league in particular um, and the prices being paid are, are probably a little bit too high but we're starting to get to a pressure point now where people want to own licenses they want to own leagues uh, teams inside leagues so we're, we're probably in that phase two Definitely in the States, they're, they're at um, I don't think we're five years behind them. I think we're probably three years behind them. I think when you compare traditional sport and, you know, let's call NFL versus AFL, um, they're probably both really mature in their marketplaces, but we're never going to be big, as big as the NFL because we don't have the population. Um, and that's going to be the same as esports. We think the way that we run our leagues, the professional inside our le professionalism inside our leagues, fit coaches, players, talent management, professionals that sit around here, I, I think we'll get to the same level as the States. And to me, it's three years away. I don't, I don't think it's five years away. We're starting to see significant The one thing I really love about the esports is being a non-traditional esporter, if that's such a term, is um, is the intelligence of the people that sit inside it. Um, most of the young kids and, and the people you deal with are super smart, super driven, um, and really want to make something of it. And, you know, that's half the ambition that you need to be to, to be successful um, in, in having a go at making these businesses. So I think we can pick up quickly. I think the one thing versus that helps esports catch up to the rest of the world is um, you don't need to build infrastructure, right? So we don't need to build stadiums. We don't have to fly across the world to train against the best team in the world. You know, my Bombers team could play against Fanatics tonight if we wanted to, um, if we could organise a scrim. So technology allows you to move quicker. Um, we don't have to make significant investments like traditional sports do um, to catch up. And from what I've seen in the last 12 months, I think three years time, um, our leagues will be as the US and North and, and Europe. Yeah, so I guess all, all three of us sitting here are uh, employers within esports, which probably gives us the credentials to talk about our first part of topic, which is starting off with employment. So I want to start with a, with a fairly generalistic question. So hiring in esports at the moment, one of the main questions I get asked is, is, uh, is a degree necessary to get a job within the space? 
Uh, I'm generally I think more important than anything else. Absolutely, I and mean, there's a lot of dues to be paid too. I think, at, in, in a, especially in an organisation like ours, uh, getting in there and being in hours, you know, build your trust and earn your spot in a team rather than walking in with a degree. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, I studied physiotherapy at one stage, so that, that goes. To, um, don't drop out of university, whatever you do. Um, but it, you know, it comes down to a passion and a drive, and and really wanting to be in a space. And I think that happens across any sector or any job. If you if you're truly passionate about it, you know, I left investment banking to go work in sport. I was passionate. You know, I had to take half my pay to do so. But you know, it's about your passion drivers and what you want to do versus having a piece of you know something about marketing or you know something in the sports science space. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that you know having a degree will help in the future, especially if you're looking at a, at a C-suite level position within maybe even a, at the moment, especially, you know, a marketing degree is not going to teach you how to run an esports tournament. Or, you know, one of the things that I talked about in the EGA conference, um, which is a game association in Australia. If you look at, if you look at someone within esports right now, if you think of the tournaments that I used to run in, in 2013 for CSGO, I would have to build the server, physically build the PC, and do all yeah. the marketing, handle the sign-ups. They'd pay into my bank account personally. You know, the company I work for would sponsor the event, but I'd also run it and I'd shoutcast at the time um, and deal with player conflicts and issues and then the payouts and go home. So, and what university degree did you do for that? <laughs> nothing, nothing yeah. for that. Yeah. So, yeah, and to give... You know, I, I finished year 12 and I studied social work for one year. So you don't, you don't necessarily no. have to to be in this space, but no. then again, I say the same thing is... You know, especially if you're a player, um, there's not always a lot of longevity in, in esports. So, you know, one of one a guy that I used to sponsor was in the second best team in the world. His his favorite thing to say was, "Yeah, finish finish school first. And mm. you know, for him, yeah. he was in the second best Heroes and New Earth team in the world, which was the biggest MOBA at the time. But, you know, he left to to be uh, an engineer afterwards, electrical engineer. So he had a, he had an after plan. I think so, the good thing is at the moment. And teams. So, yeah. you know, if you want to go to university, there's a there's a really good. You know, the guys out of Queensland, QUT, um, Dylan and the guys with the Tigers are, are leaps and bounds ahead of, of most people. In, you know, part of a university esports team, pick up the phone, have a chat to those guys. I, I think they're fantastic at what they're doing. Um, you know, we're doing a bit of work with the Bombers with them at the moment. Uh, and the time I spend in the US, uh, there's scholarships now for, for universities, and, and we discussed it earlier. Is, there's actually an opportunity to get your, your study paid for or your college paid for in the or having a, a fully funded scholarship to play esports and League of Legends, which you know starts to show that they're, they're being treated like every other athlete at the university. So um, I think there is the, the opportunity if you want to go to university not to fall out of the esports scene because I think they're getting bigger and better and stronger inside the universities themselves. Oh, your student days are your best gaming days anyway, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, exactly. Look, having said that with degrees, we certainly need people with skills. You know, skills yeah. and not necessarily qualifications, but skills. I mean, from our live events perspective, um, you know, we've just recently taken on a guy that's an electrical, uh, an engineer, uh, an electrician by trade. It's super useful. Um, audio guys, lighting guys. We yep. need people that know how to do these things to make everything mm. look, you know, pro. We need guys that can do graphics, guys exactly. that can do web, you know. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, you know, the, in the long term, that's why degrees will be necessary. It's kind of just because some guy has, um, you know, just because some guys try to practice on pets doesn't mean he can perform surgery on me or something like that, right? No, so, right. you know, you will need people with that specific 
experience yeah. and yeah. if they're doing your books or if they're an accountant you know i probably want them to have some sort of <laughs> as well but as it stands at the moment in the esports space not so much so going on to the next question then say you know you're sitting at home listening to this podcast or you're sitting in the audience here in, in reload bar in canberra and you're thinking okay I'm, I'm at uni studying something that i'm not too passionate about or school at the moment or i'm working in a job that i that i'd like to change for what are some logical pathways to entry into the esports realm um and i'll kick off this because we're probably a you know as you said an employer of, of people in the space to me it's you know sitting down um and actually having conversations with the people that sit up on, on the panel here not necessarily myself um but the guys around me because um the space is small but we're always needing people to work in it um Sometimes the pay isn't great and sometimes it's volunteer work. But I think once you start to spend some time inside the space, um, you start to get recognised and noticed. And as I said, as the space grows here in Australia, the need for jobs is going to be significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a Bombers eSports perspective, we've got a general manager, we've got a coach. Um, you know, we use health and fitness guys, we have dietitians, we use psychologists, you know, we use their sponsorship team. So there's always roles inside these businesses. And, and you know, like any business, we can only employ people based on the commercial viability of these businesses but you know i think the first thing you've got to do is just start knocking on doors um you know start speaking to as many people as you as you can um because we're all looking for help and we're all looking for work and it may be full-time it may be contract it may be part-time it may be volunteer um but the space needs help and you know as i said it comes down to people wanting to be enthusiastic and really going um into the space head first and wanting to do it and you know if i see those passion drivers i'd rather be employing someone like that than um, who's there just looking for a job in esports because it's big. Yeah, fantastic. Anything you want to add, Jim? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's spot on. And, you know, often starting off like as a volunteer will help, you know, you'll add to that company, you'll add to that, and then they might be able to start paying you for that role down yeah, the line. Absolutely. So you can make your own job to a large degree. Yeah, and we, we use a lot of contractors as well, you know, for, for graphics, for video editing. Um, you know, when we went over to the States for a boot camp, we, we took... Um, two videographers and an, and an editor. Uh, so three people went on a, a two week journey with our team to the US. So it may not be permanent, but um, at times when we need to scale up, there's always people that we're looking for with skills. Yeah, and I guess, you know, it's a big part of, of what I do at the moment. It's the business and games course across multiple levels, level one specifically being for people who are in this situation and cover a lot of the general business stuff of setting up your LinkedIn and thinking about what kind of business person you'd like to be in the space and starting off your networking journey. But for me, my main thing I tell people is esports team. You know, they're one of the highest employers globally of people. Yep. They need a lot of hands on deck, a lot of staff, and they're always needing help. Um, mm-hmm. And the advantage to you as a prospective employer is esports teams, and, and we'll talk about this a bit later, but esports teams are, there's, there's too many in the space right now. It's flooded too. So that means they're all needing help. And another reason is that esports teams cover so many different things. If you're working with the team, and, and I hired someone to work under me at Thermaltake who, who worked in a team, and for him, he was able to show me by he could do marketing campaigns, he could work with sponsors, he knew how to do graphics, he ran some events for me, uh, he could manage staff, his own players, uh, and, and then his executive staff and stuff as well. He knew how to run a business, he had an ABN, all this kind of stuff. So you can learn all of these on the ground skills that I talked about. The other one is events, fantastic way. Melbourne Esports Open is coming up. As Jim mentioned, Gamacon, every year there's an IEM Sydney. There's also PAX Australia, and there's various events all around Australia as well. That's a great way to get some on-the-ground experience. However, events obviously aren't 24-7. They're not constant where teams are. So seriously, if you're looking to make some sort of entry into the space, what I always say is pick one thing and stick with it, and that thing is 
very likely to be a team. Just send a team a, a DM on Twitter and say, hey, can I help run your social media? Or I noticed you're going to this event. What can I help with? And it's a great way to get into this. It's a great way to start getting some experience. I think the other way to have a look at it as well is, you know, don't have a look at what the traditional roles are in esports. So if you're studying a psychology degree, um, on that path and a, and a really passionate gamer, you, you sort of don't need to fit into the mold of the team. There's no reason why you can't reach out to teams and say, listen, this is what I do. I work around the sports psychology of players and, and the way we do it differently and actually create a role for yourself mm. and using outside skills and coming to the teams. If someone came to me and said, this is what I do, um, this is what I do, I guess, outside of game, it could help improve your players. I'll listen to them. Um, and it will give us an opportunity then to, as I said, we use dietitians. You know, we have exercise sports scientists work on it. So it's not necessarily just pure gaming roles, things that happen in everyday society that are beneficial to well-being you know start to think in those spaces if you work in those spaces you don't have to change what you do um you just have to find a way that it benefits a team a player a shoutcaster you know it may even be media training you know you may be a journalist who can help with media training and you know that's something that the the most organizations lack uh, obviously through our football club we do it but you know to get the players in front of a camera to produce content to build an audience is a big thing so if you're able to take them through a media training course because you have done journalism at university and work as a journo, but love your gaming. I think that's a big way to step into the space rather than try to fight for the traditional roles as well. You know, I put a yeah. tweet out this morning saying governance and regulation is the biggest challenge that we face in esports in the next 12 months. So if you're a lawyer out there, you know, start to have a look at the spaces to how you can help tighten up regulation. Mm. Um, you know, I think we're overlooking a lot of things at the moment, particularly when you put a traditional lens on it. Yeah, and if nothing else, esports lawyers love to call themselves cool and traditional lawyers, as we've learned from Matt Jessup. <laughs> Anyone else, they've always got the best dad jokes going on for sure. Yeah, you know, I transitioned across from banking in, into sports, so these things can happen, but you have to prove that you're driven in, in the jobs that you do now and that you can deliver success. And you know, most elements of business are translatable, right? And if you have those translatable qualities and a passion for, for esports, I think you can do it. And then it comes down to, to what you want to do. So. You know, again, if I'm going to employ a full-time graphic designer um, to help us with all our social content, we need you to have at least some level of inside graphic design and have a portfolio. You know, come to us with a portfolio um, that not necessarily is all about esports. Um, show us what you've done in the, in the broader space, but then show us your understanding and passion by delivering that portfolio in a way to us that, that we get it, you know. Yeah, so for you, Jim, obviously you're on the ground doing a lot of stuff. We talked... Uh, off, off camera, off microphone before about, you know, doing things at other venues. What what do you as a, as a grassroots community need support? What do we need support? Um, well, places to host, uh, well, we can do things here, but large scale, what we want to do is do larger scale events at big things, festivals and things like that. So um, support in terms of that and support in terms of like prizing as well to help draw players. We can do a great tournament here that's a great community talent uh, tournament and gets a lot of community engagement. Is it going to pull guys from Melbourne? Sometimes it's hard. Yep. We find we need the prize pools, you know, to help bring mm. those players in. So yep. um, that sort of support always prizing is really useful. Um, you know, whether it's cash or something else, everyone wants cash. cash, cash <laughs> everyone wants cash. cash. Thing, right? yeah. Um, yeah, and just more, more platforms as well, you know. So we've been getting interest from like the universities and, and also from the government. Um, and people are starting to notice there, and that's going to give us some great platforms to keep sort of waving the esports flag and broadcasting it out there. I, I think governments yeah. is a really, really good point. Um, yeah. You know, internet speed's always a challenge in this country, and mm. I can see everyone nodding and. 
you know, when, when we looked to move our team from Sydney to Melbourne, um, there was really only five suburbs in Melbourne, which is pretty scary for, you know, when you're in the US telling people that, they think that you're backwards, but it goes to show you, you know, that we're, our infrastructure is, is pretty poor. So we, we need investment from governments and infrastructure. But I think one of the big things that we need governments to really have a look at, and it's happening particularly in New South Wales at the moment, is our stadia strategy, right, from traditional sports. So we're, we're nearly finished Parramatta Stadium. Allianz in the Herald today will be knocked down in November, rebuilt. Um, ANZ's gonna be reconfigured. These things need to be esports proofed now. You know, to bump in for tournaments and, and right are the first guys to say, it's costing guys millions of dollars to put land into these places mm. and have the technology um, and the government needs to understand and try to future-proof everything we do from entertainment venues to stadiums, um, that it needs to be esports capable, not only for the domestic leagues, but if we want to attract a Worlds, we're going to have to have this thing on steroids ready to go. And when you, the best time to do it is when you pull the bare bones back or you're building something new. So governments are ultimately important in, in making sure we future-proof esports. Yeah, so I think some of the key learnings from what we've talked about, if, if you're a larger investor, if you're small or large, is is looking at users, which is pretty common for anything in tech, right? You want to look at how many how many users or what kind of data you can acquire. A lot of people are focusing, especially in the past, on the top end, which is why I mentioned the OPL yep. and you know all eight teams in the OPL, whether it's private, public, whether they owned one hundred percent or fifty. Um, so that's that's kind of cordoned off. But you know, it's it's showing that these these large teams, even though they've been in the OPL for two years, still don't have you know a membership base of ten thousand people, no. for example. Yep. They don't have. 30,000 followers on Twitter, they, their players will often have one and a half thousand followers on, on Twitter each, right? So it's hard to monetize that. So yeah, that would be exactly what I suggest, but that you shouldn't get in this in the trap of just looking at numbers because it can be hard to monetize yeah, yeah, an esports audience. Mm. And, you know, we're seeing some global companies who are saying this, you know, they're saying, I own a Facebook page, three Facebook pages, each with a million likes, and I can't make any money out of it. So yeah. I was just wondering if you could, if maybe you both could touch on that about, gets drawing blood from a stone, which can which it can be sometimes. But you know, what are what are some of the creative ways that you've done yourself or you've seen others draw money from an esports audience? Um sell them drinks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I think, you know, going back to that community space and, and as you do here, it's blending I think when you have a look at traditional sport and you know, again I come from traditional sport background, um, sport itself when it came to leisure dollars ten years ago, number two in, in how we spend our leisure dollar, um, five years on it now sits at about number eight. So food, clothing, other entertainment, Netflix at home, all these things um, are, are really big pieces to where people spend their entertainment dollar. And, and I put esports into that sports bracket. So how do you combine um, multiple disciplines of entertainment spend from the consumer, wholly and solely dependent on on gaming itself and, and, and you have a product like this. So I think things like this are, are fantastic in, yep. in creating diversified investments yeah. in what you do. We're, we're different to a lot of other, than to what your company would be because we are location-based. Yeah, and I, you know, yeah. I think Virgin is a prime example who um, made their first ever investment in esports in Australia with our team, uh, with the Bombers Bootcamp. And um, you know, that wasn't a significant investment when you have a look at the portfolio that they invest in. And we don't expect people to make significant investments because going back to the point, our audience is small. Um, we have small Facebook followings, but they are engaged. And what we did was create unique experiences uh, for Virgin by basically going behind the scenes and living and breathing a two-week boot camp with our guys, which allowed them to speak to, to two audiences, in my view. One, it spoke to the younger demographic that they're looking to do, so they're quite happy to 
to invest because we were giving them an audience couldn't already talk to and I've touched on that multiple times but we also showed a, a side to the mum and dad traveller who are probably the business traveller who sit on their flights Monday to Friday nine to five every day that um, there actually is a career path in this um, and if your kids are playing esport and I know there's an article every day that Fortnite's killing our kids um, trust me that's not true um, there's other things out there that are definitely killing our kids versus esports ask most of these people what they do for a job and I'm pretty sure they sit in front of a computer screen for 10 hours a day in an office so sitting in front of computers isn't that bad um, but it's trying to, to educate mum and dad as well that there are genuine career opportunities for these people um, you know, we're trying to do it at the Bombers more than anything um, by becoming a club of choice but you know, mum and dad need to realise that you know, playing for Essendon or playing for the Broncos is no different to playing for Chiefs or, or playing for Die Wolves and, and that will happen. So um, yeah, providing them with content that's different um, for a small investment to bring them into the space and then grow it, I think, is, is pulling that blood out of the stone. Yeah, personally for me, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of economy of scale businesses, so I'm a big fan of, of getting revenue straight away, which is maybe I planted this question because I knew I could answer it. But, you know, f- for me going working across different PR marketing positions you know running tournaments and also being a freelancer and doing consultancy it's about it's about diversification of your income more than anything else at the moment you know a lot of the people ask me I had it at the last podcast recording I did and say how do I make money from being a streamer and it was very similar to the answer you gave Rowan about about your team it's it's you've got 20 income streams at some stages you know if you're a streamer you're making money off donations you've got one you're making money off people subscribing to your channel which is paying four dollars 99 a month to be subscribed to support you of which you get 50 percent off you've got them donating bits as well which you get 75 percent cut off i believe then you've got maybe a, a sponsorship deal you're also selling affiliate links on amazon you're probably getting ad revenue as well from twitch yep. um so you know that's that's six that i've that I've listed already and then you've got some other stuff coming in as well so you know if you can use the model if you're lucky enough to do some solid networking and and talk to a lot of different companies i've done projects where i made a lot more money by selling a lower tier sponsorship to eight companies and keeping them all happy somehow than i have working with one big big ticket company. So a direct example of that was the AMD Modern Manifest that I ran many years ago, spotted a gap in the market where PC um, component sales are quite flatline at the moment. People don't wanna build their own PCs anymore. So I did an online campaign where I got about six sponsors together. Over the course of four weeks, we exposed what the computer components were to a set price. We built the PC, we did some simple modding at the end, and then we gave it away. But for that project, I was able to make more money than my subsequent NVIDIA master modder stuff that I did because I was able to sell it to AMD, plus they paid for my marketing budget. And then I got a little bit from Thermaltake, a bit from Razer, HyperX couldn't pay, so they gave me extra products. I got a bit from Western Digital. So you're seeing where I'm going with this, there's a lot of reports involved, but you're able to make more money through that diversification. So if you can think of unique and different ways to kind of you know bleed a stone, and you know people do like to donate in the industry as well, which is which is fantastic. There was a, there was a stat that came out, and I'm, I might butcher this, but it was a Goldman Sachs article I think that said was either 123 or 135 million dollars in tips was given in Twitch last year alone which is USD Um, so you know the audience does like to get involved which is great Um, and you know they are also a lower spender than other sports as far as esports goes so if you can figure out a way to get people involved selling raffle tickets getting people to subscribe getting people physically into locations and stuff as well and then try to attach a bunch of sponsors to that get people in person as well as a fantastic way if you ever want to win over a sponsor 
if you ever want to win over an investor, take them to PAX, take them to IEM. Yep. There's only so many promo videos you can show someone. There's only so many LinkedIn cold messages, which you can do, uh, which I do suggest actually, LinkedIn's my main revenue driver, as long as you do it right. Getting people physically into spaces yeah. is a fantastic way. And I mean, traditional sports does that as well, right? Yeah, right? and you know, come and have a look at our gaming house. You know, bring the guys out to the hangar and you know, take them through that space. And I think they're blown away that these guys, you know, are set up inside the football club and are treated as elite athletes. So you're right. Like, I think, it, like anything, it's getting your product, whatever that may be, in the consumer hands or the brand's hands or the investor. And the best way to do that isn't online. It's it's taking them to the to the coalface. Yeah. So next steps. You're let's say you're a person with little, or you're looking to be an angel investor. Um, what are what are some ways that you can get involved in this space with your personal money? Like like in any business proposition, have a clear defined view of of where you want to invest. Um, so it, it may be teams, it may be players, it may be the ecosystem, but I think understanding um, where you want your investment money going. And I think there's two reasons why you understand that you want to do that. Um, firstly, you believe that space inside the broader space is the place to be, and you've done your research in DD around why you think there's growth in that space. Um, but I think secondly, you need to have a bit of expertise in that space yourself. Um, don't go uh, in blind to things and make sure that you've You've spent your time speaking to people and understanding what that space is. Uh, and then, as you said, in this space, you know, DMs are, are the king, really. Even LinkedIn, you know, when we launched uh, the QE business and, you know, I said, we're open for business, my inbox was flooded. And, you know, the, don't be afraid to reach out to people and say, you know, this is, what, this is where I want to be. I'm happy to be an investor. You don't need to talk dollars with them, why you want to be in it. But... To me, I think one of the most important things from someone being an investor in a business is not necessarily all about financial. Um, and it's any investment that we make either through ESE Esports or other businesses that we have, it's we bring a skill set and expertise along with money that we think can help grow the business, not just the money itself. And hence why we always take board positions um, so that we can have a level of control over that business. And it's mm -hmm. not control yeah. because we want to strangle it, it's control because we think we can bring a level of expertise that business doesn't already have that will help grow the business without us there. So money is one thing, yeah, and it helps everything. But if they don't have anything in marketing and, and sports marketing, well, guess what? That's what we do. And let us come in and help you run that part of the business as well. And we'll do it for free with our money on top. But it's making sure you have a clear path of what you want to do and try to go with more than money. Try to go with an added benefit of your skills because I think that multiplier of financials and skills makes that business grow faster than just sitting, putting money in, sitting back and going to monthly board meetings. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, if you're a general punter as well, an interesting thing or an interesting advancement, I guess, is that now Australians are able to invest their own money into businesses where they weren't before, similar to a change that happened in America a few years ago. So there is a company called Virtual, which is a crowdfunding, think of it almost like Kickstarter, but for investments. And they're working to order to do crowdfunding for them. Minimum buy-in for that's 50 bucks. I think Order said they're, they're going to raise minimum of 135k or something like that within the round. So they're selling this like 13.7% of their business, I think. So, you know, you want to have a go with that, feel free. So, and I, I would also say that look at investing your time. It doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be money. You don't necessarily have to say, oh, I got, you know, I had some people come to me and say, well, you know, we've got some money sitting here. We think about buying a house, but should we invest in something instead? And I said, similar to what you were saying, look, if you don't know what you're doing, don't throw it in. Don't don't buy the Bitcoin if you don't know what it's about. <laughs> um, 
maybe spend some time in you know investing yourself maybe start a business yourself or or get involved personally with some of these projects first before you decide to invest and you know exactly what ron was talking about is that i wrote recently on ministry of sport about the landscape of investment in australia touching on that a lot of people are looking for angel investment right now they're not looking for series abc unless you're gamers who's you know raised three and a half million dollars last year or um you know esports mogul which is asx listed company which i think was 3.2 mil they raised in one in um in a round and things like that you know most people are looking for that hands-on help they're, they're looking for someone to sit on the board alongside them and to offer more than just the dollars the dollars is the way to get you in the in the room but you know, if you want the business to grow, uh, you, you have to get that hands-on help. And it, it goes back to the employment stuff that we're talking about before, right? You don't necessarily need to agree to be in this space right now. However, if, you know, if you're 19 years old, you run a successful team, yes, you have an idea of what the esports scene is, how to handle basic financials, you might be able to do this other stuff, but you don't have any idea of the board and the level of, of legalities required and stuff yeah. that say an MBA candidate who's running an investment firm might might know. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, to me, in any investment that you make and whether it's esports or anything in the, outside of, of esports from an investment, invest your time in it and don't be a passive investor. Um, passive investors, things go tits up pretty quickly and you wonder why. Um, but if you're gonna go into something, make sure you invest your own personal time into it because the reward is much greater, um, but you also keep the business on the right path as well by by bringing your expertise. And you know, I think there's a plethora of esports businesses out there at the moment that are desperate for different skill sets, not just financial dollars. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I think, you know, I like to use real world examples. And one of my favorites that is Avant, partnering with Bastion. Um, and so Bastion Live is, is you know, big in the traditional sports space, different brands and teams on activations and marketing and different content. And uh, they're also a team that I've worked with a lot in the past, sponsoring them with Corsair. And, you know, one of the major reasons that, that Wes from Avant would want to go with someone like Bastion, and they're very similar to what Rowan was talking about, is they had eight offers on the table, I think, was that Bastion is able to provide them with that support, is able to get them in the room with someone that they've sold multi-million dollar team investments to in the past, yep. that they've sold marketing campaigns on TV, you know, at, at 1.2 plus million dollars to companies like Swiss, et cetera, to say, hey, here's this new market of esports. And the advantage for them and the advantage that I've talked to some of these other people, even the V8 supercars racing team is saying, if I invest in esports, I've already got, say, Samsung. They already pay me a million dollars a year to run their marketing. Why don't I just bump this up to 1.2 and you get for almost free? And it might sound like a lot of money, but increasing 1.2 million is a lot easier than increasing $0 to 200,000. In a space that uh, non-endemics don't understand. Yeah, you know, what yeah. I mean? that, that's education is nearly the biggest piece at the moment to, to these yeah. brands of what is the space and, and how does it work. And, you know, nearly every meeting that I have, and I probably have two or three of them a week with, with brands is, you know, eSports 101 and, and, and what is eSports. So you're right, trying to, trying to get money out of people f for something they don't understand it is so much more difficult than, than making it part of a broader portfolio. Yeah, and look, and if you can educate companies, which I'm a big believer in, and partly because it's one of my main drivers for my business, is you know if you can if you can educate companies, then they get buy-in. The, the last thing I want to have is the traditional bad case of PR companies where okay, yep. pay me five, ten grand a month tender, I'll handle everything. This esports e-games for you. Um, you don't have to worry about anything, you know, I'll look after it all. And I find that akin to the traditional mechanic telling the wife they need to update their blinker fluid and, you know, their battery's dead after two months and they need new tires. You know, it's, it's malicious at best. So, 
you know, if you can educate these people and get them involved, um, you know, a very successful thing that I've done that I'd love to see other people do in Australia and around the world is, is take five of the core staff of this company that want to learn about esports and do a half day seminar with them. Sometimes it's a full day. I run over, this is what esports is, the lay of land, the ecosystem, the size and also the weight, talking about some realistic numbers about what player wages are, what the salaries are, you know, why a team needs to charge you, say, $25,000 a quarter for a tier one investment, where that money actually goes to and what other people are paying. And I guess the theme, you know, every one of these podcasts has a theme, which is play to your strengths. If, these, if this is a company that already works with Instagram influencers, start with Twitch streamers, yep. perfect way to start. Let's say that you're, a, you're someone that works with uh, traditional sports teams. You don't necessarily have to buy a team, but do an activation with them at the beginning, similar to like you are saying with Virgin and Bombers. Do a, do a once-off campaign, measure the success and go from there. I'm a massive fan of learning by doing. Not a big Fortnite fan, but hey, it's free. Download it, play it. Now I know what it's about. And you know, follow things on Twitter. Start to embed yourself within the community. There's always community events. Thankfully, there's esports bars all over Australia now as well. There's one on the Gold Coast. There's one in Canberra, which we're at today. GG Easy in Melbourne, Spawn Point in Sydney, Bankstown Esports Club in Bankstown, obviously. Twin Town, Between Heads is, is doing a lot of esports stuff too. So you can always get involved in esports things. You can embed yourself in the industry and then you can learn from there. Um, besides that as well, you know, obviously I'd say pick yourself up an esports consultant. I did write an article, like I said about that before, about how to vet them. But, you know, as long as you can find someone with some, with some credible uh, history in this space, you should be able to learn some great things from them as well. And make sure you chat to people on the ground, which is why we've had someone like Jim on here at the moment who's been around for ages because they might you know, necessarily know certain parts of the industry about exactly how much a team might want to raise, but they'll be able to tell you what the fans of the team actually want, which ultimately is how you're going to make your dollars. Yeah. So if you can talk to all different parts of the industry, I know that it, it can seem daunting, but I know people who've done it and some people have come to me. There's a startup who's looking to get in the space, raise a significant round of investment. They'll be launching soon with something new and fantastic. Fortunately, I can't talk about it, but you know, for them, they came to me, they already knew everything. You know, I came to them expecting them to not know anything, but they've already been, they've been to land parties. They've been to GGZ four times. I saw them at Battle Arena Melbourne. They've DM'd all the teams. They've added people on Twitter, on Facebook, started chatting to different people. So if you can do some of that round the ground search yourself and start by, you know, start with the developers and work backwards, which is what I usually say, see what the developers are talking about because they own a lot of the money in the IP at the moment, yeah. the game devs and work backwards. You can, you can learn a lot. So yeah, there's definitely expansion for the, for the esports scene to grow. So there are any final words that we want to share before we kick off into a Q and A soon? No, I think the thing I found about when I first came into the space and obviously being a, a non-traditional gamer is there's so many people out there to speak to and people are always happy to have a conversation. Um, it is daunting sometimes to, to reach out to, to players and teams and publishers, but I can tell you now, it's probably the most open industry I've worked in, in sharing insights and knowledge and, and trying to help people. So um, don't see it as a daunting, you know, I speak to the other team owners on a weekly basis and, you know, we share information that I can tell you now, no NRL or AFL club would ever share um, amongst each other because we're all trying to grow the sport together. And, you know, I'm always happy to speak to anyone at any time about it. Um, I know, you know, if you need to speak to our players, we're happy to open those guys up um, to people to have a chat. So uh, I think the one thing is, you know, just dive into it and start asking questions because the community is a great community and everyone's kind of happy to talk. And if you're really passionate about it, go do it. Heaps of growth to come in this space. And um, who knows, those CEO jobs and, and MD jobs that we talked about could be people in this room or, or people listening and watching on the podcast. 
Yeah, come and say hi. We've had four people approach us over the last year wanting to work with us and every one of them that's approached us and really said, hey, we want to, I want to help, they're helping us now. So, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and another thing too is, you know, a big supporter of business and games is, is PLE Computers. They're a retailer within the space and the retailers are a big hire too. And once again, that's working in a parallel industry. PLE themselves work with Jam Gaming. They work with us. They work with Corviday, another esports team. You know, they go to PAX Australia and they're actually hiring right now as well. Funnily enough, you wouldn't guess it, it's a uh, person who can do graphics design, uh, they would like, and also a marketing assistant. So I definitely suggest checking them out. If you are looking to help out with an esports team, like we talked about as well, another supporter of of the podcast is Paradox Gaming, and they market themselves very much as a community-based team. So they're not necessarily trying to play in the OPL or in the ESL leagues or any of the top ones, but they're building a strong community presence and trying to get people to go to events together and kind of almost like the old school, hanging out in, in TeamSpeak and playing in public service together. They're currently looking for extra staff as well. So I definitely suggest checking there. And then obviously the last one is Reload Bar, who's a supporter of the podcast and this too. You know, they're they're a good hire of people. And especially if you're, if you're looking to make some money and you're working at uni, pick up yourself an RSA or if you want to get involved in events, that's another fantastic way as well. Yeah, I think, absolutely. Yeah, I think the, the one thing that we probably missed on, we, we talk very domestic, but um, you know, if you finish university and you want to have a year off, go to the States and go to, to Europe and you know, the markets there are massive and you jump on you know, Esports Insider and those guys on a daily and weekly basis, there is jobs galore over there and they're looking for yeah. help all the time. So don't think you have to do esports here. Go overseas. The, the opportunities over there are, are fantastic, and I know they're desperate for talent. And no one loves talent more than you know North America and Europe for for Aussies because we're hardworking. So get over there. Yeah, fantastic. All right, so thanks for thanks for everybody for coming here today. This is uh, this wraps up the main portion of our podcast. This is the Q and A portion, or we're all lubricated with a bit with of beers. beer now, yeah. um, and a bit more relaxed. So, like I said, feel free to ask any questions about anything we talked about tonight, whether it's about employment and investment within the space, whether you're new, whether you've been around for a while, or any questions uh, directed at us about esports in general, feel free to kind of pick out one person, ask a question or ask it to all of us, we'll chime in. Uh, we've got, you know, the next 30, 30, 45 minutes dedicated to answering any questions from anybody in the audience. So yeah, feel free to go ahead. We've got a roving mic heading around. So yeah, who'd like to go first? There we go. Hey, good day, guys. Uh, good day, guys. Um, you, at the start of the podcast, you mentioned a lot about stages and how Australia was uh, in the first and second stages, while other places were in the fourth and fifth. Um, just for a bit of clarification, what did you mean by each stage, and from one to five or one to ten, even? I'm not sure how it goes. Yeah, do you yeah, sure. I guess for, for me, you know, it's not necessarily something that's fully set. It's not like a rule like this has to be stage one or two. But but what I say is it's almost like steps. So like Rowan yeah. said at the start, kind of the first move and shaker in the space was probably Dave Harris at Guinevere Capital. And I call that almost stage 0.5. He acquired a OPL team. You know, they're quite a young team. The OPL is quite young at the time, invested in them, you know, took them under his wing and helped develop them and then added other things to his portfolio from there. Another big step ahead would be, say, Adelaide Crows getting involved with Legacy. I'd say that's probably step 1.0 because that's the first big company to publicly get involved with esports. And then you're looking at, you know, 1.5 and 2, 
you know, maybe stage 1.5, I'd say, were people like Order, which is, uh, you know, they're crowdfunding at the moment, like I said, but they have a lot of directors coming from a traditional sports space or traditional business space, putting together a big pool of money with investors to then approach and do some privately invested teams, as well as ones like King's Gaming Club as well and Greyhound Gaming, the more uh, singular investment people pushing forward, where, you know, you're looking at then America, which is, you know, maybe stage three or stage four. And the reason they're sitting there is because they've got massive teams that own NBA and, and NBL and NHL teams who are investing in people like Team Liquid. They're buying up sponsorship slots for 20 million, Shaquille O'Neal, Ashton Kutcher's putting in money, et cetera. So there is a bit of a gap between, you know, angel investors and, and general investors putting in, say, 100K a piece and Shaquille O'Neal maybe, I don't, you know, was publicized how much you put in but if he's buying an overwatch world league spot it's quite a it's quite yeah. a substantial investment so there are some gaps but i just kind of talk about it in stages so you start off with just angel investor being the only thing which is say probably dave harris would sit in then you've got the significant uh you know public investment then you've got even more significant private investment and we're kind of snowballing that up yeah absolutely and uh, it's it's more of a maturity timeline um than anything and whether five's your end number or tens your end number it's kind of when does it become a fully fledged industry versus a startup essentially and and that could be five years where every every stage is a year or it could be a 10-year time horizon where you know we're starting to see certain pillars or key moments within that industry that make it more professional or make it more mainstream so um you're right i don't think there's any set terminology in and around when each of those stages happen but it's basically when significant moments that change that industry occur um is when we sort of make those pillars but um without a doubt i would say that the states are probably one step away from complete maturity you know we'd, we've nearly seen all the investment from every sector that we can see um mm. in the overwatch league they're about to go to home and away 2019 or 2020 where these guys will have their own stadiums and will fly like teams in and out of venues like to me we've got a sport then you know we have mm. a true sport in the sense of and and to me esports is about it's no different every other sport is where we hit the maturity point um and i think they're 12 months away from that whereas here we're you know stage two of five yeah fantastic all right next question uh, hi there my name's uh Tenille. um i basically have a question in regards to the low population issue that we have in australia Obviously, we're not as big as the US, China, Europe. Um, so reaching that maturity point is obviously going to take probably a bit more time to get that interest and, and the investment in. Um, you mentioned that if people are really interested in getting into the industry, they could go overseas. Uh, but I was wondering, what are the chances of getting uh, external countries, um, international countries, from investing into Australia? So obviously combining Australia with New Zealand. But what about Southeast Asia? Um, because we've got these countries, Indonesia, the Philippines, where the governments are just starting to invest in fiber and the population is getting richer and more people are getting Wi-Fi and, you know, internet gaming is becoming more and more popular. So what are perhaps the chances of combining Australia with uh, these countries, you know, um, Singapore, Indonesia, Japan? Is there a future in that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think that's a double yes. Um, yeah. No, and I think I'll, I'll speak it on two levels. Of, you know, time zone, the old, you know, where you used to go and play pinball machines and, you know, games as we see sitting up here at the back. Uh, their biggest investment now is in Southeast Asia, um, Australian-based company owned by an equity capital venture here in Australia. Um, 
their biggest, I think they're rolling out 150 time zone sites in Vietnam, Singapore, and China over the next three years, all of which are around esports specific. So they see absolutely the growth of that region. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I kind of know a fair bit about the Overwatch slots is we investigated buying the Australian slot. Um, so they're looking for an Overwatch League slot out of here in Australia. Um, the only way we could do it was to partner with China. Um, so QE Sports as an investment arm has a good link into Hong Kong and China. Um, we would have needed Chinese investors. Um, we're starting to look at 40 million US to buy that slot. And to be honest, it's not only the investment that we needed, but we needed the Chinese audience to make it relevant for us then to grow that business. So yeah. um, we were definitely looking at, albeit we probably would have been called, you know, the Sydney Koala Bears or whatever it would have been to make it <laughs> nice, fun and fluffy. But we would have been a Chinese team essentially. And when you have a look at it from an over, uh, from an OPL perspective, I think last year we had 7 million unique viewers globally watch the OPL, 6 million came out of China. So um, absolutely, that's where our audience is. Even from our team perspective at the moment, we are speaking to non-endemic Chinese brands to partner with Bombers. Um, so, you know, there's mm. no reason why uh, we couldn't, you know, I think Oppo is a prime example who's come out here and everyone's knocking on their door. Massive Chinese telecommunications company. To be honest, do they really care about selling handsets here? No, not really. But if I've got 6 million viewers out of China watching Oppo Bombers, um, there's some more handsets to sell back there. So yeah. there is, and, and we're getting closer obviously to, to Asia. Yeah, and esports is so much more advanced in SEA than it is in Australia, even to the fact where mobile esports is a massive thing, which doesn't really exist here. And I've been doing a lot of research into that myself about Clash Royale and some of the other games and you know how I can activate on that, both client-led as, as well as myself-led. And uh, the simple answer to that at the moment is it's hard. Um, but if you if you look at Thailand, for example, so they're, they're having a similar thing with esports in Australia. If you have a Thailand-only Dota 2 tournament, they're getting two to 3,000 concurrent viewers. Realistically, that's what we're getting for Australia, for CSGO, for the OPL, for Overwatch World League, et cetera. Um, Overwatch Contenders, my apologies, in Australia. But if they run a uh, mobile games event in Thailand, they get 100,000 concurrent viewers. If you, if you go to... Uh, if you go to Kuala Lumpur, there'll be two mobile tournaments every single weekend there in shopping centers that are quite large. They've got, you know, esports is recognized as a sport in certain countries in SEA. The Singaporean government got 20 key stakeholders together two weeks ago into a room and said, we can't win a gold medal in the Olympics. How do we win a gold medal in esports? We want to be a forefront of that. You know, as a, as a country with limited to no natural resources, they're obviously very invested in that and, and not too much success in global sports either. So they see esports as a major growth for them. You know, one of my friends runs a agency out of Singapore and the government pays for all of his staff wages, for example. So, you know, there's some fa- fantastic developments we can learn from there. But part of it, I think, is the cultural barrier can be hard. We are technically basically in Asia. However, like I mentioned in the main part of the podcast, we are US consumers. If you look at what esports people buy, um, you know, working for a Taiwanese company before Thermal Take, then to a US company, Corsair, Australian consumers are much more likely to to adhere to the to the Corsair style of branding, except for not so much for the thermal take style. So they prefer the higher quality products, the higher ASP average sale price. They prefer the marketing, the product feel, the research and development, which you don't get as much from the other ones. So there are some of those issues as well. So there's definitely a lot we can learn. And like Rowan said, there's a lot of companies from there looking to here. And there's a lot of companies from here looking to there as well. So a lot of people are saying, how do we start getting into SEA? As far as other overseas money goes, 
Recently, Kanga Esports sold a Paladins player to NIP, which was good. So they're a Swedish base. So he went over there and he's playing full-time for them now. Um, Fnatic bought Rainbow Six Team in Australia. They bought Mindfreaks Rainbow Six Team. Uh, we've seen a whole bunch of imports come in for the OPL across many different teams. So people are starting to come into Australia. Australia is also a destination, which is a positive for us. A lot of people want to come here. And also what I'd say is that we don't always necessarily have to worry about bringing other people to us. I'd say that Australia is a, is a fantastic boutique market. Aussies love spending money on local things. They love supporting the local industry. You know, I'd find it hard to find another country besides America, which would have on the packaging, what percentage of, of that product is made in Australia, for example. And I witnessed my, my girlfriend buy uh, buy a product at Aldi because you know her, the tipping point was one of the products was 100% Australian, one was 75%, and that actually influenced her purchase. I doubt you'd see that in other countries. So I think we have a fantastic boutique market here. As much of the growth issues that AFL and NRL have, they're still fantastically more um, functional and make a lot more money than esports does right now. So we can look at that, and also I think we can look at exporting in the future. There's no reason that we can't make Australia a cultural hub or a cultural development space for esports. We have world-class cricketers, world-class swimmers here. There's no reason we can't do that with esports and focus on building a strong local scene. And then if we need to, selling players off to other countries and having them go out there. We don't necessarily have to bring global esports to us. We don't have to buy all the all the Overwatch spots or, or worry about is SK Gaming going to set up a satellite office in Australia? I think that if we focus on ourselves first, the rest is going to come after that. But that being said, even like I said with SEA, another example is Optic Gaming has uh, opened up a contingent in SEA as well. So a lot of people are looking into that space. It's uh, easier to market in because it's much lower wages. There's no minimum wage in many different countries and that around that area so yeah there are some things that they can learn from us and we can learn from them so yeah i definitely think there's some collaboration but um as i you know confused a bit of myself and probably a lot of people here and those listening there's a lot of work still to do i think before that goes ahead yeah look i've got something to add there um we've been approached twice now by by asian companies and we're not we were a bit mystified as to why they approached us uh one was a company that wanted us to put on was looking asking us for a quote to put on esports show at computex and we're like, why are they asking us for an Australian outfit? And another was an mm. Indonesian property developer that was looking to build an esports stadium in a huge development near the KL airport. Like, well, why are they talking to us? I think it might be something similar to the way that Australia is recognized for its excellent sports science. Yeah. We have like a good reputation for um, integrity and uh, things like that. So perhaps they, they want a different a second opinion. And Australia is, you know, recognised as being a very developed and advanced nation. So we have things to offer. Yeah, and the challenge for Southeast Asia, as we've seen with Tencent um, in the last 48 hours, is government regulation. Yeah. Um, so obviously Australia, North America and Europe, are, you know, um, how do I put this as politically correct as I can, are, are probably a, a, a little bit easier in their governance of, of people and, and rules. And, you know, what we've seen is, you know, a company nearly lose, you know, $100 billion in 24 hours because... The government has decided that games are, are killing their youth. So, um, you know, the, the entrepreneurial expertise of these businesses are, are pretty strong. Um, but when you have government regulation intervene over these businesses, we find challenges. So um, Southeast Asia can be a tad bit of a minefield in, in that basis as well. Yeah. So we've got another question. Um, so there's this controversial statement by uh, League of Legends Pro Doublelift where he said that there's a faker in every region. Like faker, of course, referring to uh, the best player in League of Legends. So my question, like in reference to 
the recent moves uh, to like the American League from regions such as Europe and Korea. Um, how would you go about incentivizing pros to stay in smaller scenes like Australia to grow the competitive scene instead of you know, going overseas for greener pastures? Yeah, look, I think that matches up, like you were saying, another controversial thing is from Toby, Toby One Dawson, one of the most famous um, Dota 2 casters in the world, probably casting the international right now, is if you want to get anywhere in esports, get the hell out of Australia. So, you know, it does become hard because if, you know, if you're a commentator, say you're Zach Rusty Pie and you're sitting here in Australia casting the APL and you get offered a good amount of summer money to go cast the LPL in China, it's very unlikely you're going to give that up. So I think... You know, it's about what I was saying before. It's about being realistic about your market and trying to grow it. You know, sometimes, um, you know, I'm waiting for someone to call me an idiot for playing so hard in the Australian space when I could probably go make a lot more money in the US. However, for me, it's the passion. I love living in Australia. All my travels, you know, Melbourne or Brisbane is probably the only place I ever want to live in the world. You know, might be called up on this later on, but, you know, they're, they're fantastic places to be. The weather's good here. Um, you know, security's good here. Services from the government's great unemployed you get money healthcare, that kind of stuff right so there are definitely a lot of advantages to australia like i said before it is a destination but i don't blame these players like uh Dige dog from paladins going over to nip or uh in a row going overseas and he's come back recently or um the other player going off to play for echo fox as well yep. it's happened fairly recently as well so i don't blame people for doing that but i think if we can once again focus on developing a, a fantastic local scene here focus on developing ourselves as a boutique market we can grow some fantastic people. And if we have to send a few people off over the way, I just think that's a win in the end. Look, if nothing else, um, the the guys made a good amount of dollars selling off their player yeah. to NIP. Yeah, I think that that's always going to happen in a global economy of sport. Um, you know, there will be big markets that, you know, and I, and I relate, I guess, Premier League football um, to A-League as the same as North American to, to OPL. Um, you know, We'll never be able to compete with the EPL and our best players will always go over and play in the EPL and, and we kind of want them to because that grows the talent pool here when they come back to a domestic basis and the same will happen when our players start to go overseas as well. You know, I'd, I'd love nothing more than my guys to go play in the North American League, which means that we've fostered talent and we've brought talent through to be able to take them up there. Um, mm. Just pulling it back to a Bomber-specific perspective is, you know, we can't compete um, globally for, for dollars, but we've got two imports in our team at the moment and it hasn't been about money for them. Uh, it's the opportunity of an experience to come and live in Australia, which when you think about esports players, most of them are young individuals. Um, you know, if you're ever gonna get a chance to go live in a country and have a, a fun 12 months, um, I'd love to come and live here. And, and I think that's a big attraction for players to come down. Uh, the other thing that we're really working hard on with the Essendon Football Club is um, providing services to our players that are not just about financial. So um, all our players are full-time employees, they're not contractors. So annual leave, sick leave, um, holiday pay, superannuation, everything that we do in and around our players, they are fully fledged employees of the club. Um, our boot camps are, are, are you know, set up to be, I guess, not necessarily a financial game, but a benefit to these guys. You know, we took the guys to LA and North America for two weeks. I don't think any team's taken away an OPL team for two weeks. Um, on a trip, which has been fantastic, probably outside the direwolves, they do it a bit. Um, but the other thing is what we're doing is we're providing opportunities in lifestyle, health, fitness, nutrition, but also internships now for the guys. So 
over the summer holiday break, if you study economics and finance at university um, or you're going to TAFE and you're studying a, a CFO's course there and you want to go work in the Essendon Football Club finance team, we'll find a three months you know, internship for you guys to, to go through to it. So we're trying to create peripherals that are not necessarily cash to attract players and, and keep our players. And I know next year when we're, you know, we're looking for some new recruits um, to fit our you know, OPL and OCS system, you know, one of the things we'll do is, you know, we won't compete on dollars, we'll compete on additional benefits that we can provide to players. And that's both domestically and globally. And I think we'll start to see more and more players, you know, as we do with A-League that may not be at their peak in the international scene, but have, you know, just retired, but probably still at their peak, come down here and, and be marquee players for for use of a, a, you know, a term in traditional sports. So, and, you know, if these guys have massive followings, like most of these guys do, it can only help the OPL. Yeah, for sure. Any other questions from people in the audience? I um I got several questions, but um I'll ask Rohan since you mentioned this more specifically. But um you mentioned that uh, one of the biggest hurdles is getting the Australian government to like recognise esports before we can get much like grow much larger. So I was yep. wondering um. If we ever get to that stage where it becomes recognized, what do you think would be the challenges like beyond that? Would, would you try to emulate like the way America and Europe have done to grow esports or is there something else maybe as a club or in the industry as a whole, like an I idea or some yeah. vision for the future that could make it grow faster? I can be a futurist now, which is good. <laughs> um, to be honest, New Zealand's are ahead of Australia in the esports space in leaps and bounds. Um, you have a look at their high school league, uh, it's recognised and registered, I think, across nearly 600 schools in New Zealand, which is a phenomenal step. And I think with anything for a government to recognise something at sports, you need grassroots. And obviously through high schools and schools, grassroots is, a, is an important piece. When I talk about it on an Australian basis, I think we're only a couple of years away from it being recognised as a sport. I think the work that uh, Nigel Smart and the guys at Crows and Legacy are doing and have done with the South Australian government uh, what the AFL will do uh, with the Victorian government and in particular federal government. Um, the AFL are a, a much more powerful beast than I think people recognise when it comes to government. You know, they got something like $400 million worth of funding um, to redevelop their own stadium, which is a pretty impressive feat. Um, so they have deep links into government. And I think the more and more we see mainstream investment and mainstream sport invest in the space, government will stand up and notice. And, you know, when you've got you know, call it 4 million gamers in Australia, you know, that's anyone from Candy Crush through to, you know, League of Legends aficionados. That's a large proportion of your population. So um, we need to recognise yeah. that now. Um, what that looks like in, in five years' time, and as I said, I, I think we're only a couple of ways, years away from it being recognised. But what happens is once you receive government funding is um, exemptions become, you know, brought to you at a rapid pace and also funding, right? So funding is obviously a key to the growth of, of any sport. And I think once we see funding, we'll see the setup of community centers, high performance centers, elite pathways, education around the game. And to me, one of the biggest challenges, and you know, I love what Chris does from an education space with brands is um, a kid who goes down the park, and I use this analogy a lot, and kicks five goals in a game of AFL, dad knows that he's done a great job, right? And there's this bonding moment and high fives and we get knackers on the way home in the car. 
But the kid who's just had a pentakill in League of Legends and comes out and tells dad, um, dad's got no idea that what he's done is probably worth 10 goals in AFL. Um, and the government had the ability to speak, obviously, deep into the Australian population just through their access to data. And one of the things I'm really passionate about is how do we get mum and dad to understand if son or daughter has done something exceptional inside esports, that there's a bonding moment and they've done a great thing. Um, so all those things combined, I think we start to see, you know, billboards and posters and shows of esports guys, guys who, you know, are taking selfies down the street with, you know, professional players. And, you know, we're starting to see kids wanting to grow up to be professional esports players because we have the infrastructure um, and the infrastructure is invested through governments and we've got supports, we've got grants and we've got funding. So, you know, I said it, I think, 12 months ago when I sat at the SCG and an esports conference that esports will be as big as AFL and NRL in five years' time and everyone laughed at me. Um, it, it is genuinely realistic that it will be a code. Now, what game that is or where we go is the question, but it as a genre of sport will be as big as everyone else. Yeah, for sure. No, I think you I think you hit quite a few nails on the head there. I think if you also if you wanted to look at some of the people who are currently working in that space to get esports recognized as a sport. I mentioned briefly before I'm part of the Esports Games Association Australia. You know, we have a sixty four page constitution that's applicable to the Australian Sports Commission guidelines and you know, a lot of that is is being a member based association to allow the members to speak because if you want esports to be recognized as a sport one of the factors of that is who's the, who's the mouthpiece for that and who represents people. So it's to gain a catalyst of a membership base to then be able to farm the members for ideas and, and what they want to push forward to then get it recognized. And then afterwards, you've also got the issues, like you said, uh, you know, you, you made that post yesterday or today about governance being a major issue in esports as well. You know, there's a severe lack of governance right now. And while EGA doesn't claim to be a governing body, it might transition into something like that with the colors to members in the future, should the members wish it, they, they have the voting power to, to enact change. But then you go through those issues as well as is who's regulating things, who's approving and denying things. What we've seen globally is that a lot of the time the governing body, the analogy I like to use is esports is a house. The governing body kicks down the door and says, I'm your dad now. And esports <laughs> goes, who are you? I didn't vote for you. I don't know who you are. Never seen you before, but now apparently you're my boss. So creating something like the EGAA, which is membership based, is supposed to be the opposite of that to allow the members to actually have the votes and to speak about what they want. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of issues. And I think, you know, we can take a lot of those as they come. And that's why, you know, there's legal and regulatory panels. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Fortnite in the news. There's been a lot of talk about loot boxes as well. There was actually a Senate loot box inquiry, which EGA did submit to, um, which I wasn't able to attend the live briefing of that. That was today, actually. So we had um, Julian Hoskins from Senate Legal was representing EGA there. He also made the submission on behalf of us. The IGEA also did as well. So it's about, you know, about providing a cohesive uh, voice between the game developers, associations and industries and the esports to talk together to the government to say, this is what we need to work on. This is where we need to go towards some of the fantastic things like Rowan said is I've even been talking to a lot of local councils who say, you know, we have a lot of people in our region who work in IT. We've got a large migrant population. How do we tap into that with esports? How do we get esports startups to come and work out of our co-working spaces? You know, a big pitch of mine when I talked to the Victorian Liberals a year, year and a half ago was, hey, try to provide some of these companies with tax breaks or incentives to come and set up in Melbourne. Because if you set up your headquarters in Melbourne, with two staff earning $35,000 a year each paid off VC money, it's very likely when that company is worth $10 million in three years, they'll have 30 staff yeah. working out of 
your one state. If you look at ESL, Australia, New Zealand, this is a fantastic example of that. All of the top level people that work at ESL in Sydney, they're all from Brisbane. Damien Corky, um, probably just butchered his last name, JB Hewitt, Nick Manzetti, um, and, uh, and Mr. Inman, they're all from Queensland. They've moved to Sydney out just because they've had to, but a lot of these people are wanting to move to Melbourne. Gaming teams are moving to Melbourne. You know, Rollins brought his Bombers team to Melbourne. Mammoth has moved to Melbourne. Order's based in Melbourne. Greyhound's now based in Melbourne. Um, I'm probably missing one, maybe two. But, you know, if you, if you look at that, for example, so there are so many different advantages that can be had at this. And once again, it's, it goes back to the marketing aspect of reaching a new audience. If, you're, if you want to be uh, elected as the Prime Minister of Australia, uh, you need to be start hitting 14-year-olds because in four years they're going to be voting for you yeah. when they're 18 and they have no idea how to do that right now. So there's so many advantages across the board from one side to the other, from marketing to governance to just helping out kids you know, talk to their parents a lot more. Mum used to yell at me to get off the computer, video games aren't going to get you anywhere. Thankfully, she's a social worker. She's admitted she's wrong. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Especially, you know, when you start going to your first tournaments and you say, I just got a six-figure job offer and it makes it much more realistic. But if you don't, you know, we don't want people to have to go to those extremes. We want what's oh, happening right now where, you know, some of the endemic brands that I work with, they're like, you know, I'm pushing my kid. He's seems to be very good at Fortnite. How can I make them a bit better? Because I want to, I want to push them into tournaments when they get older, I you want know, to be ninja. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want him to be ninja and be earning, you know, one and a half million US a month off donations alone kind of thing. Right. So his there's, looks good though, doesn't it? Does it? I haven't, seen seen it? No, I haven't seen it. No, it's going all right. Yeah. So, so definitely, you know, I think getting esports recognized as sport is fantastic. It'll help out a lot of the students not being able to get leeway from their um, universities, not being able to move university dates. Michael Carmody from Legacy, his favorite thing to say is that if you play the cello and you're doing a recital, you can get an exam date moved. However, if you're going to play in a $2 million Rocket League championship, that's not a good enough reason to move an exam date at all. So two very different things. I'm sure if you were going to the Olympics, they'd drop everything and put you on a pedestal uh, to win $0. But if you at KP and you're playing in a $25 million USD international, that's not a good enough reason because it's video games. So there's still a few hurdles to get over. Obviously it is education. And you know if everybody can take the evangelical route, the educational route, it's a fantastic thing to do. Starcraft scene's fantastic at it. So hopefully everybody else can, can do that. Yeah, any other questions from people in the audience? I think you said you, you had a few more. Yeah, feel free. Fire them away. Um, so this is more of a question for James, but it's open to the whole uh, board as well. Um, <laughs> how do you go about ensuring the competitive integrity of uh, even things like tournaments, uh, especially when there's a in in a smaller scene? Um, and this is just like in reference to the 2015 uh, StarCraft Brood War match fixing, max, uh, match fixing scandal, which involved like top pros like Xavier, right? Um, so yeah, just one of your thoughts. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I guess the biggest thing is to have integrity. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> just, just have integrity at your core. Uh, it's a small town. I know a lot of the players. I'm friends with a lot of the players and I'm always very conscious of that fact. And um, a clearly defined rule set at the beginning is going to be your best friend so that if something comes up, you know how to handle it. And everybody knows how that's going to be handled. You don't want to do make any decisions partway through if something you know unexpected comes up that's going to lead someone to potentially think, oh, you're doing this because it favors this team or that team. So whenever I've had to encounter a situation like that, um, I've got both teams together, get the captains to talk it out. You know, that's always a good way. Uh, if, 
But the more experience you have, the more you'll be able to anticipate problems. If you've always got fairness in your heart, then you're gonna, you know, I think make the right calls and just be transparent and explain any sort of decisions that you do need to make. It's it's a massive issue in in becoming a sport mm. is is integrity and governance and yeah, I, I'm I'm genuinely concerned about it for for the sector, um, particularly as money flows into the space, um, the need or want to fix games and, and change games increases like in any other sport. Um, now that nearly every game across the world has a wagering market across it, mm. scares me um, because there's, you know, I know for a fact that nearly all of these gaming or wagering departments don't have product fees or participation agreements with the governing bodies. Um, they run their own rules around this. And you know what, if, if I wanted to tank a game, um, you know, in nearly any league in the world, I, I don't think it would be that difficult right now based on, on what's going around. And we've, we've heard about all the stories in Korea and the black market gambling that goes on to those and, and players going missing because, you know, teams have lost it. I, to me, it's it's really scary. I come from a racing wagering background where your product is gambling and money. Um, and the reason that horse racing, I think, has the success that it has in this country is the level of integrity and regulation around it. You know, it's everyone thinks it's fixed, but I can tell you it's it's probably the most governed sport hands down because it relies on integrity more than anything in the world. And, and you know, we see the levels that they go to, to clamp it down. And, you know, I, I bang on rights door every ownership meeting that, you know, we need to set up an integrity regulation model. Um, you know, right do a fantastic job, but, you know, this is the difference between traditional sport and where we are at esports is they've gone through 100, 100 years of integrity issues to get to where they are now, you know. Right, lock away our, our peripherals at the moment and everything gets scanned before the guys sit down. And, you know, if if we lose sight of a player, they have to get all that stuff re-scanned. You know, that's fantastic. But what we need to do is start to work with the peripherals, particularly to me, wagering and gaming operators, to make sure that we have a level of integrity. Because when there's an opportunity to make money out of, you know, a situation that people are vulnerable, which I think they are in esports because they're typically younger athletes, um, it's a genuine concern for me. And, and the other thing about having government support is the level of investigation and interrogation that they provide through policing and staffing of police around integrity issues. And I think the government is there to help us fund and grow the sport, but also help us put a level of integrity and regulation around you know what is essentially criminal activity inside the sport and making sure that people, you know, if, if they do the wrong thing, we'll be punished for it. Yeah, another question. I've got uh, just one question. Uh, Rowan, a little while ago you were talking about uh, five years until esports as big as all the traditional sports in Australia. Um, so we're seeing that uh, traditional sports are um, uh, buying into esports at the moment, uh, trying to find the synergy, uh, complementing each other. Uh, to what extent do you think uh, traditional sports because um, we know the footballs all have a rivalry. They're all yep. fighting for that, you know, that, that Saturday afternoon view. There's four of them now, right? Um, is there room? I mean, I mean, aren't they worried? Yeah, I, they're definitely worried. Trust me, I've got a football club that owns 50% of my business. And, you know, there's a reason that they invested in our business was because they could see the growth of it and, and they were worried. But probably not worried, you know, let's look at it as an opportunity. 
you know, an opportunity to grow a fan base to engage with people they can't engage with. So, you know, you, you've got to turn your worry. You can't just sit there and worry and put your head in the sand and in five years' time go, shit, we knew this was going to be scary, but we've been taken over. And you've got to turn, like anything, a negative into the opportunity. And the opportunity is, well, how do we make it a complementary business to what we do? Um, and that's where I take my hat off to Essendon Football Club, take my hat off to the guys at uh, the Crows. Was, they've seen it as complementary, not, not a threat. And how do we make it part of our business? But... Where I see esports living um, to traditional sports is uh, the the demographics obviously slightly different, albeit grassroots participation is at a same level when you start to talk, you know, let's talk 13 to 20 year old males and females playing a sport, um, which is nearly the biggest drop off in all traditional sports right now, right? Are they playing esports? Are they watching Netflix? We kind of don't know where they're going, but we know they're going somewhere. So. Esports is probably one of the spaces they're going to, so let's try and engage with that audience. But the thing I find is, you know, you talk about prime time slots. So you know, Broncos Rabbitohs is playing right now, Thursday night, Friday night footy, seven o'clock, Sunday Arvo footy, two o'clock in the afternoon. They're actually not esports slots. Um, you know, our guys will game till three o'clock in the morning. Um, not that I really want them to, because um, they're going to be in bed, sleeping, resting to scrim the next day. But you know, if you have a look at the kids when they come home from school, prime time's four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, they get home, so we can be running tournaments prime time for esports at four o'clock in the afternoon that then runs into a footy game at seven o'clock at night. Um, we can kick off a tournament or a prime time game at 10 p.m. on a Saturday night, which is basically, you know, linear TV for, you know, a reference to the broadcast is probably their death hour, you know, and you're probably watching someone try to sell shopping network stuff to you at that time, where for esports, that's actually prime time. So I actually don't think there's this competitive nature for, for slots, for viewership. I actually think they're really complementary. Um, and I actually think it's going to add depth to the overall breadth of sports running into each other and creating new time slots for, for what we do. So um, are they worried about participation? Yes, and they should be. Um, are they worried about time slots? I don't think they should be. I think they should be complimentary. Yeah. Another question from someone? Hi, um, I was just wondering what is a perhaps a good age to start influencing uh, young players? Um, so like a lot of players, I started playing at five and just played at home. That's all I did. Yep. Um, so is there probably a market for, I guess, after school like coaching, uh, for example, where, yeah. you know, instead of your child going to play AFL for a couple of hours after school, they go to a coaching place, maybe they do homework for an hour. Yeah. Then, you know, they, they have some coaching one-on-one -on -one time or with the team talking about strategy, uh, whether it be like a, you know, strategy game or a turn-based or whatever. Like, is there a big market for that? Is that probably way off in the future once the esports scene gets bigger? Yeah, I do. I do a bit of work with uh, Flectest Gaming, which is a high school, Australian high school esports league, uh, verified with the schools that they work with. And the guy who runs that, Brett Sullivan, the CEO of, of Flectest, is also a high school teacher and he teaches IT. And he came at, he came at me with a number the other day that something like 75% of kids want to be a full-time content creator these days as their job. So that's, that's one part of it. So definitely, you know, high school kids are someone that's good to reach as well as the fact of that he talks about, and this is changing a question a little bit, but changing it more towards the content side of things. It's not, it's not so much about the gameplay. When I was in school, it was about who could get the most uh, kills in a Battlefield 2 round, you know, who was the best at Counter-Strike 1.6 or CSGO, how do you become better as a player? For them, it's about the content and what's generated around it. 
So they have uh, Fortnite clips that go viral within their own school where whenever Brett tries to talk to his kids about tournaments, about esports, professional playing, they're saying, hey, no, take a look at this rocket jump that I did the other day, uploaded on YouTube. Here's a Twitch clip from Ninja and all this other streamer and things like that. But, you know, besides changing a question around, I think that, you know, starting in primary schools and high schools is a fantastic way. As long as they're over the age bracket for the game that they're allowed to be playing, I think there's a massive, uh, massive gap in the market for people to do things like that. Yeah, and I think um, going back to the high school example in New Zealand, there's some remarkable videos and, and case studies around kids at the school who were never athletic, right, and could never wear the school colours in rugby, cricket, basketball, and always felt that they actually weren't part of that school community. As soon as there was an esports team and an esports league, they actually felt like they belonged. So participation increased, attendance increased, yeah. their actual efforts in school increased because finally they felt part of that school and they got to wear the school colours. So um, I think it's actually a fantastic thing to to be able to have esports communities with inside high schools. Yeah, fantastic. All right, well, I think we'll uh, wrap it up here, but all of the people on the panel will be around for a lot longer if you want to come and ask us any questions in person. So thanks for coming along today, everyone. And we'll chat to you again thanks, soon. Guys. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed what we had to talk about. I think that, you know, Rowan Sawyer and, and James are, are two people who cover different sections of the market but but flow off each other quite well you know rowan's obviously got that very good top-down look coming from traditional sports you know working with the vc fund qe sports owning an esports team uh, working a lot in the traditional sporting space in both marketing and management and services capacities and then you've got uh james aka jim andrews who's you know really been on the ground for so long running internet cafe for i think it's over a decade now um i wish i asked him actually live how long it was you know i was playing in tournaments there uh as of 2013 Counter-Strike Source and I know he's he's been around the scene much much longer than that and he's seen the kind of rise and fall of gaming and internet cafes so you know they're, they're two great people to contrast and hopefully I could tie them in a bit better for you. So like I mentioned in the intro, we'll be hosting plenty more of these live events. If you have any specific topics, any specific venues or guests that you'd like to see or whether you'd like to be on them yourself, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Smithy Mayo or at Business in Games on Twitter. You can also find me on LinkedIn or Facebook, whichever one you may prefer. We will be announcing our next live event soon, which will be coming up in Sydney. We've got some absolute star-studded guests coming along for this as well, so I'm extremely excited, and we've got a really cool venue lined up too. So once again, this podcast has been made possible thanks to PLE Computers, Reload Esports Bar in Canberra, and also Paradox Gaming AU. Thanks for listening, and bye for now.